Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the space and help lead the charge towards a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm Diana Chen, your host, and I'm here today with my co-host, Matthew Gold, co-founder and CEO of Unstoppable Domains, and Mason Nystrom, a research analyst at Masari. Uh, Mason has done just fantastic work researching all sorts of topics in crypto and blockchain. He's got a special interest in Web 3.0, which I'm personally very interested in as well. He's even written um, an an advancing Web 3.0 manifesto, and he's got a weekly newsletter that goes out on that topic. So I'm really excited to talk to him more about this topic and why he is so passionate about it. Welcome, Mason. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Diana. Thanks, Matt. Happy to chat about Web 3.0. Awesome. So to start off, Mason, I'm just wondering, how did you get interested in crypto and blockchain in the first place? Yeah, that's a a good question. I don't really have any uh, uh, quintessential rabbit hole moment or anything like that. I was doing my MBA in Hong Kong and started working for a cryptocurrency exchange out there uh, called Gatecoin and just fell in love with crypto. And that was during 2017. And then subsequently made my way back to the States, joined Consensus as uh, part of their marketing team where I helped a lot of our portfolio companies, and then uh, made my way to Masari uh, in June of this past year, in June of 2020, where I'm a research analyst and I specifically focus on uh, Web3, NFTs, social tokens, and things of that nature. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Consensus is uh, a company founded by one of the founders of Ethereum, and it's been around, I guess, since 2015, well, since when Ethereum launched, and they are actually in a lot of different companies in the space. They're like the the big <laughs> the big Goliath behind a lot of these small startups. And I don't even know how many companies they funded, uh, but they have been just an absolute wonderful angel for the crypto community, uh, helping to see, I would probably guess, hundreds of founders at this point uh, in the blockchain space over the past couple of years. So for those who don't know, Consensus is one of the, one of the good guys in the crypto space pushing forward uh, technology. Definitely, yeah. You can think of them as a, a blockchain conglomerate. They have a venture arm, uh, internal uh, kind of studio that has funded a lot of infrastructure that makes Ethereum run, like MetaMask, Infura, Truffle, a bunch of other stuff. And I was going to say, even the the path that you just described, Mason, is a, is pretty interesting because you were actually originally working as a personal uh, trainer, and then somehow that led you to go get your MBA in Hong Kong. Um, talk more about that, and you know how how you got interested in crypto as you were getting your MBA, and then how another fun fact is you actually worked at Masari back in 2018. And before you were at Consensus, and then you went to Consensus and then came back. So talk about that whole journey, what, you know, how you got into crypto um, when you were in Hong Kong, and then how you, why you decided to come back to Masari after taking a couple years off. Definitely. So yeah, um, I was a student at TCU, I worked as a personal trainer, uh, kinesiology uh, lab assistant, and was really uh, focused on like strength and conditioning, performance enhancement, and decided that... I didn't know if this that field was going to be for me long term, and so I decided to uh, continue schooling. Uh, had an opportunity to to go to Hong Kong to get my MBA, and wanted to really branch out and explore a lot of different things. 
And so uh, one of that one of those things I was kind of curious about was crypto and uh, you know just Bitcoin in general. So I started working for a cryptocurrency exchange out there, and uh, Masari, which was founded around that same time, started hiring community analysts to build out their like open asset pages, which is kind of this uh, global registry of, of free uh, open source information on a bunch of different crypto assets and protocols. And so I participated in that community for a couple months and then found my way at Consensus uh, and having known a lot of the people at Masari when they were finally looking to hire someone to uh, talk about Web3 and NFTs and and just really expand their research coverage. I was like, this is a no-brainer and hopped on the team and been loving it ever since. Awesome. So how would you begin to explain uh, Web3 to somebody who's new to the space? Yeah, definitely. So I feel like in crypto, we have all these terms that kind of end up being generalizations of trends. So whether it, where you while you have like DeFi is, you know, decentralized finance, I look at Web3 as a trend of democratizing the internet. And so what that means in practicality is taking all the existing protocols and services, everything from, you know, your internet service provider, which is like Comcast, AT&T, all the way up to, you know, applications you use on a daily basis, like Spotify, and building those on permissionless blockchains with open protocols and open standards. And so that, that's kind of like the, the general trend or thesis of, of Web3. And, you know, the the scope of that is is really large because it it's the entire internet stack. And so that's everything from, you know, video transcoding, to domain name services, uh, which you guys are familiar with, and and uh, everything in between that. So uh, I guess it's a lot of things to tackle. And I, I know you recently <laughs> just you recently just put out a uh, you know well you guys put out reports all the time. Uh, so, but if you were to say maybe this this year, what's uh, what's coming first? You know, what are the first major challenges uh, to adoption for Web three that you think we're going to tackle uh, in, at least in the in the shorter term? That's a great question. Yeah, this is definitely a, a multi-decadal trend. And so I kind of view us in the building out the infrastructure phase. And so that ends up being things that either you know developers use on a daily basis, uh, APIs, uh, looking at you know the, the fundamental ways that, that people interact with the internet tech stack and building protocols that enable communities to own and operate those networks. So... I mean, we can dive into some examples if you want, but yeah, I'm actually curious how many, so you probably have a better count of this than anyone, but how many of these companies are you tracking? Cause people out there, they have no idea. Like, you know, my dad has no idea what's actually happening in web three. So give us, give us some numbers here. Like how many, how many of these companies are there? How many people are actively working on this space? Is it, you know, tens of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people? I'm curious. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's dozens of, of protocols and assets uh, which you know accompanies, I would say, thousands, if not tens of thousands, of individuals around the world. And I mean, even if you look at uh, you know the domain namespace, there's various uh, projects and protocols that are are tackling that and uh, trying to approach it from different ways. And you have that in file storage. You have that in really any any type of uh, protocol, internet service providers. Obviously, the ones that are uh, hardware uh, intensive have like less competitors, but it's a really exciting field to be in. And it's it's really just on the precipice of getting started. One thing I'm wondering, Mason, is um, obviously our goal here is widespread adoption of crypto and of Web3. We want everybody to use it. What do you see as being some of the major challenges to that widespread adoption right now? <laughs> yeah, so there's so many. Uh, and I, I think that anyone who who works in crypto or or even 
uh, is an enthusiast probably recognizes that. I believe that convenience is a huge just like feature that most individuals want. Uh, And so like, you know, you don't get, you know, our parents on board or uh, any, you know, less technical individual into this technology unless it's easy to use. And that encompasses a lot of different aspects, whether from just the underlying technology, whether it's like making Ethereum, uh, you know, faster and easier for people to use, uh, reducing gas fees, making things like a MetaMask more uh, ubiquitous into like a user's like mobile experience. Crypto is a very desktop heavy experience right now, but the world is shifting to mobile. And so trying to ensure that everyone is able to use this technology is a big, big challenge. Got it. And obviously one of the things that, you know, you're most known for is your advancing web 3.0 manifesto. Uh, Everybody should go read that, but um, can you just sort of summarize it for people that haven't read it yet and um, sort of talk about like what you include in your newsletter too? Like, obviously there's a lot of content in the space, but for somebody that is new to the space, they're sort of wondering, well, you know, what else is there to know about it? So talk about like more of what are the different use cases, I guess, and applications that the general public might be interested in? Definitely. So if, if we kind of step back and look at Web3 from an, an angle of how does this, like, why is this important? Why does this matter? Uh, I think it kind of comes down to a few key points. One is that the uh, platforms of today have largely built their networks off of the backs of individuals. And uh, that's pretty easy to see in, in any system, whether it's Spotify, you know, they really leverage artists, whether it's like Medium, you know, they leverage all these writers. Uh, and so those individual creators, whether it's content or uh, some other field, don't really get the value that is being extracted from them. Another key principle of this is that as d- data is this really powerful force and as a company gets more data, they're able to create more services and applications. That's why you see every tech company becoming a financial services company, just because the the closer they can get to the wallet, the easier it is for them to monetize. And that centralization of data is really important because it's hard for any sort of innovation to happen because you, uh, as a, a new startup, can't compete with these incumbents. And so making sure that that data is open and available for other uh, applications and, and companies to utilize is important. And also making sure that that data isn't being abused because I think we all understand that our data is valuable and that companies are abusing it. That's why you search on an incognito window before booking flights, because you just instinctively know that you're going to get charged more if you have prior search history of something. And then the last kind of key tenant that, that I look at of why Web3 matters is that we have these existing internet services uh, that aren't being valued. So you have this this concept of, a, of an internet treasure. And an internet treasure is a service of the internet that is used widely, beloved by all, but very poorly monetized. And so there's dozens that come to mind. I mean, Reddit, Stack Overflow, are, are two. Wikipedia is probably like the quintessential example of these are, you know, essentially community-run protocols that provide a lot of value, but are not able to sustain themselves effectively because they can't monetize. And so by, you know, using these primitives of of crypto networks, tokens, uh, these, you know, non-fungible token standards, it opens up new monetization paths and ways that we can really uh, create a more valuable internet for all the users and creators out there. 
Yeah, and I know that's something that you've been researching a lot lately and you've been tweeting about and things is um, what this is all going to mean for content creators. And I think more and more we realize, you know, that content is keen. I mean, Bill Gates said that back in 1996, <laughs> ages ago, but I think people are finally starting to realize that today and even more so moving forward. Um, and something that I found to be really interesting is you recently wrote about sort of the different eras of content as we've progressed. So can you talk a little bit more about that, like the history of content platforms and content creation up to today and then where we're moving towards in the future? And then finally, um, your whole thing about crypto enabled content platforms, what that could potentially look like one day. Definitely. So if you look at what the internet inherently did is it made the uh, ability to tran transfer information really for like really easy and cheaply uh, across the the globe like that's like a like at its core what the internet did it made information freely available and so a lot of the uh, first applications that that came out from a, like a, a consumer content perspective whether it was like Medium or Pandora were aggregators in the sense of they gave everyone a place where they could come create their content and that could be freely distributed. And that was a great deal like in the beginning because like that in itself was really challenging. But as the value shifted from, you know, okay, I there's so many other social networks, so many other ways that I can distribute my content, that value proposition of oh, we're going to distribute your content for free, but we're going to take a lot of the, the monetization rights and, and capabilities became a raw deal. And so that's kind of the the like first early era the the distribution era and then as we get into like i'd say the era we're kind of living in today is this subscription era where you have aggregators that predominantly uh take most of the value and so that's things like spotify uh or substack and you know in the case of spotify you have very uh little value that goes to individual artists uh podcasts are a little different because there's just ways you can advertise on them but still, you're you're not kind of getting the the bulk because Spotify just has that that monopolization over your content and its distribution. And and if you look at Substack in particular, it's an interesting comparison to like Medium from like the previous era because the top Medium writer probably makes anywhere from like eight to thirty thousand a month, whereas like the top Substack writers earn millions of dollars. And so just that there's like a, a key, a key display that your content is actually really valuable. And it's if, if you're able to monetize more effectively as like a writer or an artist creator, then you can really do a lot better. And that's kind of the the landscape of today. And and then we get into using these these existing crypto protocols and primitives to uh to really build out better content platforms. Got it. So then, you know, just to sort of dumb it down for uh, users who aren't familiar with this yet, what will a crypto enabled content platform look like? Like for a content creator who's maybe putting out a lot of content on YouTube right now, or they're an Instagram influencer or something like that, like what will life on the blockchain look like for them? How do they make money? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. And really like the the question that matters. And if you look at it from the perspective of like, if we're in the subscription era, like where are creators not getting the full value today? And I think it was Danny Greenberg who uh, had the uh, quote that if, if I do a job for 30 minutes, 
because I've spent like 30 years learning that craft, you're paying me for uh, the years, not the like 30 minutes. And I think that really resonates with people because uh, if you're an artist uh, who is, you know, working on whether it's like digital work uh, or, or any other type of content, your early work is valuable, but you end up selling it at this massive discount to your future value. Because like, as you build your brand and, and gain a name, like your previous work just becomes more valuable. And so the the kind of way that crypto fixes this is it allows you to uh, ascribe a, a digital representation, like a, a non-fungible token to say like that piece of digital art. And so if you're selling your art as an NFT, well, you can collect a royalty on that for you know the lifetime of that art so that every time it's sold you're getting a cut of that and that is massively powerful when you're talking about how creators can really make money especially off of their content and a, a really key component of that is that not all content is the same value and by that i mean it's kind of like uh just like in venture capital where you have this power law where you know your your best blog post or your best song is going to outperform the other 99 then you you have that same effect. And so you really want to be able to value your best content appropriately, which doesn't happen today either. I would just say I'm very interested. Like I really like the medium versus substack comparison, and that's not even all the way there. And then I also agree about musicians because any if you have any musician friends in your life, you know they don't feel like they're getting paid enough by these streaming services. I am still unsure exactly how this is going to work out, uh, but like you can see the difference in value there. Like you're saying, it's literally 100x between what you can make on one of these platforms and what you can make if you go direct to consumers. And like that's just so much opportunity there for technologists to seize on and like give back uh, to content creators. So uh, a little transition here. <laughs> so so I want to I want to get back. I want to take back. So so we're going to get back into uh, NFTs in a minute here. But actually, before we do dive there, I'm actually uh, so uh, tell us about. I'm sorry, and then you know why did Ryan Selkis start the company? <laughs> what problem was he trying to solve? You know the genesis of the idea. Uh, take us through like you know. So you, you see all these problems in the world. You go on to tell people about them so that we can solve them quicker. You know, what, what, you guys, how are you guys doing that over there at Masari? Yeah, definitely. So if, if you look at Masari, we're aiming to become the Bloomberg terminal for crypto. And so that means is we're providing data, research, and all types of other information on different crypto assets so that it's kind of a, a go-to place for investors, individuals, enthusiasts, anyone who cares about the quality of this information. And that whole thesis really was founded by uh, Ryan Selkis during the ICO boom, where you had a, a plethora of just projects that were raising at pretty insane rounds. Uh, some were like promising things that could not be promised. Uh, there was like a, a shortage of any sort of valuable information in terms of like, how does this thing, how does this token vest or, uh, where can I get this information? And so that kind of uh, initial like problem was was a, a core reason why uh, Ryan Selgus believed that there needed A, to be this open database where you could access this information, but also that there just needed to be a, a higher quality of information for the people who need it, especially if you know we end up having, as our, our thesis is, that a large percentage of uh, the global systems are going to run on permissionless networks and permissionless blockchains. Well, that information is going to be incredibly valuable. So that last point there is key. So you actually just think that the, the number of companies in this space and the number of things that track is just going to 
explode. So my next question is like, who's using you guys right now? Who needs a Bloomberg of crypto? And then why do you think you're in a good position? Like, why does someone need a new Bloomberg of crypto? Why don't they just use Bloomberg? What is it that you guys are doing? What's the special sauce you guys got over there? Yeah, I mean, the the first thing is, uh, I mean, traditional Bloomberg is going to cost you $25,000 per year for a terminal subscription, and it doesn't really cover crypto that well. The people who are kind of coming to us are either people who are already crypto native uh, and professionals in the space or uh, large institutions who just uh, need help keeping up with what's going on. So we have uh, a couple a couple products at Masari. One is like our basic kind of subscription, which provides access to all of our metrics, uh, data, information, uh, research, API. And then we have a uh, another subscription, which is a, a tier above, which we uh, just released called Masari Enterprise. And that comes with a whole suite of, of upcoming products. One uh, that is a real-time blockchain monitoring system that covers over 100 assets. And so we cover things like if there's a bug, a contract exploit, a governance proposal, um, and really anything that's like key or noteworthy that's happening on the assets, which is incredibly important because as someone who works full-time in this space, like I can't keep track of everything. Like I can barely manage like my sector. And so for people who want access to like the entire world of crypto, they're, they're really... Uh, isn't a, a better way to get that information than using Sorry Enterprise. So we're big on education here because uh, we got a lot of first-time users. Uh, so if someone is out there and they just want to learn more, uh, what would be some of the resources that you'd point them as a getting started point? Because like the one thing that I tell people is like, there's always a place, you can always go read about cryptocurrency. You don't have to just jump in and speculate because uh, it's going to be touching every little piece of your life. So uh, where can people go to get more education? And are you guys providing that uh, service as part of advancing the whole Web3 movement? Definitely. So a kind of a, a, like I said, a core early tenant was making certain information free and accessible. And so a lot of our, uh, actually all our asset profiles are free uh, and, and public. So you can, if you like want to Google an asset, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or, or something further down the long tail, uh, we probably have a profile on it where you can read information or if we don't have like a full profile built out, you can get access to, you know, the website, kind of the, the actual uh, go-to places for that individual protocol or product. And then you can also access Masari.io for free. I mean, we have all, a lot of our initial price metrics. A lot of our information is freely available. And then our subscription comes with just added features for people who are more curious or, or want to get more in-depth information. And I, I know this is a, a tough question to answer, but I think of all people, you're probably one of the best positioned to answer this because you've done so much research. But looking ahead to 2021 and then farther, you know, let's say like the next five, 10 years, where do you see the space moving and evolving towards? And, you know, can you maybe call out a few just exciting things that everybody can um, look forward to in the next year and then in the longer term. Yeah, it's definitely a, a hard a hard prediction to make. I think that we're still in a, a speculative phase of crypto as with all things crypto. And so I really see NFTs having a kind of speculative mania phase and to, to an extent that that has started, but I think will continue to grow over time. 
uh, at least in the short term. And then it'll kind of have its its moment where it grows and balloons and then maybe comes back down to uh, some more rational expectations of what NFTs have value. In the long term, I really think that you know we want these these worlds and global systems to run on permissionless blockchain networks. And so I don't know if we get there in a decade, to, to be honest, but if a portion of them are running, whether it's like using DeFi protocols or uh, Web3 protocols, then I would consider that success. I believe that it, it will, you know, we're going to get to some sort of point where innovation will just become easier. And so once a lot of these, once a lot of this infrastructure gets built out in the Web3 space over the next, you know, year to two years, I think that then it's going to really have its moment of, of massive growth. Yeah. And then more specifically for Masari, can you share any new and exciting things that Masari has planned for this upcoming year? Yeah. So Masari Enterprise, our new product launched a couple of weeks ago. And so that was a, a big, a big uh, goal we've been working on for a really long time. Uh, there's going to be a lot of new features that come out regarding Masari Enterprise that, that I can't talk about yet, but it will be well worth it when, when they finally go live. Switching gears just a little bit again, uh, wanted to talk about NFTs because we actually mentioned those briefly. And I was, saw you tweeting about Chamath and NFT, NFTs not too long ago, <laughs> right? Um, but so we talk about NFTs a lot on this podcast, blockchain domains or NFTs, art, art or NFTs. But what do you guys see over there? Because you guys are essentially an education and an analyst company. What do you guys see are the different investment categories uh, for NFTs? Just, I'd love to hear your flavor on the space from, coming from maybe the investment angle. Definitely. So if you look at uh, NFTs just from, you know, like a what are they standard, it's really just a, a file format, just in the same way that a GIF or a JPEG is a file format in which you transfer value over the internet. And so there's the angle of looking at NFTs from like what they are. And so that would include, you know, like domain names, uh, maybe like digital art, you know, metaverse assets, stuff like that, in-game items. And then there's really from the investment perspective, because like if you look at it like categorically of, of what do NFTs enable and then what applications and protocols kind of come from that, I think you can get a couple different buckets. So you obviously have the individual NFTs and collectibles, which, you know, to, to a sense that's been the most successful or, or I guess the most prominent form of investment for a lot of people who enter the NFT space because like they want to purchase domain names that they think are valuable or they want to purchase art that they think is from a really cool artist. But the way in which an individual NFT or collectible becomes valuable is really hard to replicate. So like from an investment perspective, that's not necessarily like the best strategy unless you're like really, really in the weeds uh, and know exactly what's going on. And then you kind of have these other buckets that I look at uh, that are enabled by NFTs or, or that really uh, empower NFTs to like really grow. One of that is social tokens, which is this kind of trend of creators, uh, whether it's Twitch or YouTubers, uh, writers issuing tokens that represent the kind of their underlying performance. And a lot of times, you know, they're issuing NFTs that can represent access or uh, badges or, or any sort of kind of value to the people who follow them. Uh, you have a another bucket where you have NFTs that are used in like some sort of like governance uh, marketplace. So like something like Rarible uh, is a really good example of that, where you have uh, an ERC twenty uh, token, just the Rarible Rari token that governs the NFT marketplace. And I'm really excited for how those evolve over time, just because marketplaces are you know a, a tried and true business model 
but I'm, I'm really looking forward to how those evolve into like massive protocols over time. And then obviously you have kind of the financialization of NFTs. So something like NFTX, where you take individual NFTs and try to make them more liquid, which is a huge problem in NFTs. And whoever solves that, that issue is, is going to be really successful. And then the last is just a bucket of like any other type of protocol or network that facilitates the use of NFTs. So that could be something like Audius that might eventually issue songs as NFTs, or it could be something like Engine where uh, it uses you know, its ERC-20 token to represent the value of all gaming assets that are uh, built on their platform. And so those are kind of the, the investment buckets that I see. Well, I'll throw another one in the protocol space, domains. <laughs> because, yeah, because, and domains, yeah, yeah. Because people are using these domain names to, to route all their payments. So, uh, Mason, and, you actually said... Actually... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, you said a lot there, and I was actually taking notes here, <laughs> so I'll, I'll go back through it for everybody at home. So we were talking about NFTs, and we have several prior episodes on NFTs. So if, if you're just tuning into this one, I would suggest go back and listen to those. And so Mason was actually talking about NFTs from an investment perspective, and he kind of broke it down into different categories. I'm going to list what I have here. You'll tell me how good my notes are. But there's basically just straight up digital assets. And in that category would be something like art, uh, which we've talked about a lot. And, I, and it's super interesting. I like that because it's fun. Uh, and it's just you know kind of a new thing to have digital art. Who, who would have thought that was a thing? Uh, then you mentioned another one. You mentioned So that's just straight. This is straight digital asset. And you have another one, which I liked how you said this. Uh, were uh, social tokens that were kind of like enabled by NFTs. And what you were saying there is that you could have uh, various artists or content creators creating a token uh, for their community. And then this would allow them to do things inside of their community. Maybe it's membership or uh, special perks or just some way to keep track of their community and also monetize it. And this kind of goes back to our early discussion about, you know, artists not making enough money. And well, you know, there's probably a lot of people out there who love their favorite uh, artist on Spotify and would love to give that person, you know, some support if they had an easier way to do it. So that was another one. And then you had uh, NFTs as protocols, which you touched on in the end. And uh, we were talking about domains and there's a few others that got mentioned there as well. NFTs as governance. Uh, and this is basically using the tokens themselves as a way for people to make decisions. Um, and you mentioned Rarible as they're uh, on there. And then lastly, financialization of NFTs because uh, crypto is really good at tracking assets generally, which means it's easier to lend against them or appraise them, right? And so I think we're going to see that as well. Uh, so that was that was a good category breakdown. I like that. Appreciate that, Mason. Yeah, of course. And you know, I think that as like obviously it's impossible to to predict like what the eventual creations of NFTs are. One kind of interesting uh, anecdote is that if you look at the S and P and how they value their assets versus like physical assets versus like intangible assets that would include like intellectual property, domain name, stuff like that. The, you know, in, I think it was like maybe the seventies, like a, a large percentage of assets were physical assets, you know, probably worth like in the 70 to 80% range. And then today in 2020, 90% of assets from the S and P 500 are intangible assets. And so NFTs are just a way to take these intangible assets and make them in a more effective to make them a more effective mechanism where you can plug them into different protocols, you can uh, add different permissioning rights around them. And so like it, fundamentally, the the shift is going to continue and the new types of value that happen is going to be really interesting because I would never have guessed that, you know, uh, like Fortnite skins, which are essentially 
uh, clothing in Fortnite that have no actual use in the game is a multi like billion dollar industry. And so like there's a, a massive behavioral component to how we value things. And it's impossible to predict how that uh, shifts over time. But that's just kind of a taste of, of like, this isn't uh, some like crazy new concept. Like it, it really depends on bringing existing intangible assets onto blockchains and then also how consumer behavior just naturally evolves. I like that comparison as well, because uh, we have been in this weird, like half paper, half digital economy for about like 60 years or something. And you're right. Like, you know, Disney, I would guess that, you know, the large majority of their assets are all these all these media that they've made. Right. And that's not like a factory or a truck or anything like that. Uh, it's purely digital. And what crypto uh, technology allows us to do is take all these assets that are tracked poorly on paper and all these other different ways and then uh, put them in a way that's a lot a lot easier to track transfer share uh, get revenue off of than you're saying and thanks for that i'm going to use that that bit of knowledge there 90 percent of assets now in the SP are intangible so for people who are asking like what's the eventual size of the crypto market like how many assets could be there We'll just point to the fact that 90% of the assets on the S&P are these, you know, hybrid paper digital assets that need to be digitized that are just running like 50 years behind technology um, and they move over. So this actually leads me to my next question and it's a pretty good tee up. So there's a famous Vitalik quote, 2017 bull, bull run cycle, and it's when Bitcoin went from, you know, 500 to 20K or whatever. And he was essentially saying, you know, how many I, I know what it is. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. The have we earned it tweet, right? Uh, and so I have to ask, you know, when there was a huge run up, Vitalik was like, have we really earned it? And then um, do you, so here we are again, you know, three, four years later, uh, it's a new investment cycle and these happen. Uh, and it's because cryptocurrencies chronically, crypto markets chronically underinvested because uh, investors don't understand the mm -hmm. space. Um, but here we are again, we have another investment cycle. And so are, do you think uh, we've overextended again? We're here at Bitcoin at 50,000 this past week, you know, Ethereum at 1800. Uh, and I'm not talking about long run, you know, long run for all believers. This is multi-trillion dollar asset class and it's not a problem. But given the amount of investment that's needed every year, uh, you know, do we need a billion a year investment, 10 billion a year investment? Um, you know, have we earned this this current moment in the space? Uh, or are there some areas you think people should be more cautious in? You know, I, I think it's a it's an interesting question from the perspective of like Ethereum, Bitcoin. Uh, I think, yeah, like it's been earned uh, the the amount of development uh, and traction that it, that has come for both those uh, assets and, and protocols, respectively, is, has been enormous. From the context of maybe like some of uh, the more emerging types of you know categories of crypto, whether that's Web three, whether that's NFTs, social tokens, I think it's it's slowly being earned. Um, I think that we're we're still not at the point where we have like a like go to business model for a lot of these protocols yet. DeFi is is relatively been earned, I think, and I think you can just see that because it's everything kind of has coalesced around similar models. You know, Maker is now a, like a what five year old company uh, and uh, supports you know billions of dollars in loans. So I'd say it's definitely been been earned from uh, DeFi as well, and I think we're 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 getting there uh, for the more emerging categories. And then on an investment flows perspective, and you may not have an answer here. I'm actually just kind of curious. Uh, how much investment do you see being needed 
you know, per year, like in the next couple of years, because a lot of these companies are still pretty small. You know, it's hard to hand a hundred million dollar check to a team of five, although sometimes investors do it. So I'm actually, are you guys following fund flows at all for investment in VC in this space or, or anything around those lines? Uh, what are you guys seeing? You know, I'm sure the numbers are up and to the right. Uh, just any commentary on that in general. Yeah. Um, I don't have any like uh, numbers offhand, but I mean, there's as with every bull run more, uh, investor appetite into crypto, which is good. I think that, you know, you could have said it was very under, uh, you know, funds and in terms of like investing in uh, crypto startups, pretty undersubscribed throughout, you know, 20, like 18 to, to 2020. Oh, yeah, and then terrible. I'd say in the back half of, yeah, <laughs> it was, it was as, as a company in the space, I was like, really, guys, it was it was pretty it was pretty bad 2018, 2019 uh, coming through. Yeah. And part of that is, is, you know, we just had this over pendulum swing of of, you know, euphoria to your protocol doesn't need a token. And like that just swung too far to the opposite extreme. And so I think we've come back to a to a medium of like, fundamentally if you look at like these permissionless blockchain networks like tokens enable them to be valuable and so whether that's like an erc like governance token or an N- or nfts that is really what makes you know part of all this possible and so I, I think that slowly you have larger investors that are getting into the space and i think once bitcoin really becomes cemented as hey this is digital gold this is you know an, an easy asset that we can allocate to you will start to really see a lot more inflows into the long tail of, of crypto. Well, Mason, we covered a ton in this conversation about Web3, NFT, social tokens. Uh, let's just help the listeners out a little bit. If you were to summarize all of this, um, everything that we just talked about, and some key points that people should really take away from this conversation, what what are maybe one or two of the key points that people should take away about Web3, about NFTs and social tokens? And also, what are some you know new and exciting things happening in the space that people should really be looking out for right now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, from a, a Web3 perspective, I would say the, the general takeaway is that over the coming decades, we are going to uh, drastically shape how we revalue these existing applications and services. And the way we're going to do that is by ensuring that the people who provide the value are getting rewarded. And so these protocols and services are going to be owned and operated by uh, the collective rather than corporations and special interest groups. And from the NFT side, I think that, you know, Bill Gates got it right. Content is king. And NFTs are just kind of the next era of shifting all existing content into a programmable way that we can more effectively utilize and consumer behavior is shifting and there's no way to predict how that's going to evolve, but it's going to drastically alter how we interact uh, and how we think of value. Awesome. Thanks for doing that for our listeners. All right. So yesterday I tweeted out that I was recording with you today and we got a lot of excitement on Twitter. People sent in a lot of questions. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I do want to call out a couple of them for you to answer. Uh, The first one is actually from Zaji on our team. She wants to know, she wants to know the behind the scenes secrets. Uh, She says, Mason is one of my go-to research sources, but where does he gather research? Where does the researcher research? It's a great question. I would say uh, I spend too much time on Twitter, so I get a lot of information just from you know that natural feed. 
And then uh, I try to stay plugged into discords to, you know, different channels. And then I also try and reach out and talk to investors, founders in the space to see what they're thinking of and building. Awesome. And then another question from Twitter that I want to call out is, what is the best way to earn a yield on crypto assets that is secure, simple to use, and sustainable? Ooh, I don't know if I have an answer for that. I mean, I think that it all depends on your risk appetite. Uh, there's there's a thousand percent yield if you want it out there, but I don't know if I would call it uh, the safest of investments. I would say, as as always, if you're uh, investing in crypto, particularly if you're yield farming, you know, don't invest anything you're not willing to lose. I would one one note is definitely interact and play around with protocols. I think Pool Together the other day uh, released their token and distributed to people who had. Uh, contributed liquidity to their pool. So it pays to to be a, a user. All right. And then in the final segment of our podcast, we do this with every guest that comes on. This is called Explain Your Tweet. This is where I pull out <laughs> some tweets that you made and uh, that were maybe interesting or cryptic or funny and give you a chance to explain them. I will say your Twitter is one of my go-to sources for learning about this space. So everybody listening, you should definitely go follow Mason. Um, he's got really good stuff. It's just at Mason Nystrom. And uh, but there was something funny that came up. It came up in one of the questions that we got on Twitter. And then I dug through your tweets and sort of found the source of where this question came from. But uh, Jack from Asari asked, how many Girl Scout cookies do you have left? And so I, I was like, what is this? This is, <laughs> this is a random question. And I dug it up and come to find out you are not so much a fan of Thin Mints or Tagalongs. You're very particular about your Girl Scout cookies. So uh, tell us more about that, because from my perspective, I, I mean, Thin Mints are by far the best out there, especially if you put them in your freezer. Yes. So uh, the long story short is uh, I, I put out a, a tweet joking about the what, what Girl Scout cookies are best, and uh, Samoas are obviously the correct answer for that question. And part of it was uh, CMS, which is a, a fund in crypto, then retweeted that tweet and said that if I changed my name on Twitter uh, to Mr. Thin Minty Mint, then he would uh, buy everyone Girl Scout cookies, which I interpreted as, cool, I'll change my name and he's going to send a bunch of people, including myself, a box of Girl Scout cookies. And that was not the uh, correct interpretation. The correct interpretation was I got a receipt for uh, 860 boxes of Thin Mints being uh, shipped to my place. And so I am gleefully awaiting the shipment of Thin Mints and pondering what to do with over 20,000 cookies. <laughs> wow, you, you got played there. Well, Matt, I have to know, what's your favorite kind of Girl Scout cookie? I'm a Samoa person, honestly. Yeah. Oh, I'm man. Also, yeah, and uh, Respect. I need to stay away from them, uh, just FYI, because the pandemic has completely destroyed my uh, fitness routine routine here. So, and then, <laughs> yeah, we're trying, trying to steer clear. But yeah, definitely Samoas. I also love Thin Mints, though. I, I'm not going to turn them down. Uh, and 866 boxes. Only frozen, only frozen. Well, yeah, if you, if you exactly. feel- You got to put them in your freezer. If you feel overwhelmed, you can just forward them to Diana. She'll take them. <laughs> I don't know what oh, part of the sure. deal. Gladly. <laughs> I am, Gladly. I am I'll, away, I'll send I'll, you my address. <laughs> perfect. I'll be giving away as many uh, as many boxes of cookies as possible. I, I'm a taker and 
listeners of this podcast, go ahead and tweet Mason if for you want a free box, box of Thin Mints. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. tweet, tweet at Mason for a free box of cookies. You have to pay for shipping. He'll do it. Well, um, Mason, it has been it has been a pleasure uh, getting to getting to chat with you today and getting kind of a more of an investor's focus on on the space because I think that there's different frameworks for looking at this and it was nice to kind of talk through how you guys are looking at it. I'm sorry. Uh, so at the end here, how about go ahead and plug yourself? <laughs> how can how can users <laughs> how can users use your products? What are the first things that you suggest for people to do if they're trying to learn more about space? And yeah, just give us the pitch. Definitely check out masara.io. We have uh, a lot of great information, most of it which is free. And so uh, we have explainer pieces on DeFi, Web three that are free for anyone to access, as well as all of our asset pages. So great place to start and you know, find information and then feel free to reach out to me uh, at Mason Nystrom on Twitter. Always happy to chat and talk with anyone who's building something interesting. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Mason, for being here. Thank you listeners for tuning in and we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something I've said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, download the podcast, and share this episode on social media with your network. This helps other people find us. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. We can continue the conversation on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, or ideas to me at Matthew E. Gould. We look forward to chatting with you, and thanks again for listening.